Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're going way back. We're going way back in this episode. You know I sometimes like to do a bit of prehistory. We're going way back to the Neanderthals. They're in all of us. It turns out the latest thinking, the, 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 the science has changed extraordinarily over the last 20 years. It's super exciting. Uh, we no longer think Neanderthals were a, a genetic cul-de-sac, an evolutionary cul-de-sac, but their, their traces of them lives within all of us. I love this. Um, if you want to go and, uh, and listen to all the back episodes of this podcast, we go all the way from the Stone Age uh, right up until the nuclear age, the digital age, yeah, fact. If we do all of that, we cover it all on History Hit. So if you want to do that, if you want to binge listen these long summer days... Uh, please do so at historyhit.tv. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get one month for free and then you get a month for just one pound, euro or dollar. But this episode is with Rebecca Rag Sykes. She's just written a fabulous book about Neanderthals. I'm enjoying it so much. It's my holiday reading. I'm enjoying it so much at the moment. Uh, Kindred, you've got to go and check it out. It's transforming the way that we think about our own humanity. Not every book you read does that. Um, so Rebecca Rag Sykes, fantastic book, fantastic interviewee. Here it is. Enjoy. Rebecca, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is really great. Um, I am uh, a huge fan of uh, Neanderthals, um, and and they're kind of and the fact that we're we're um, we're kind of reviving them. You know, that uh, when I was growing up, Neand- Neanderthal it was it was actually a, a derogative. It was a pejorative, right? People used it to say this person's an idiot. But we now your description of them is is just presents a, the the picture of a hugely sophisticated. Uh, how do we describe them? Species. Oh, well, that's a can of worms in the first instance. But um, uh, species has different definitions. Um, Primarily, can two um, organisms breed and produce viable offspring, then they are kind of the same species. But within um, zoology, there is a there's a concept that's kind of useful, which is allotaxa, um, which is where you would apply to things like the fact that a yak can make babies with a cow so they're different species but they're very closely related so I think that's more how we should be thinking about um about us and Neanderthals because we've not been separated from them that long 
somewhere around 700,000 years ago, um, our branch split off from the branch that was leading to them. And that's not far off the same period in time that the chimpanzees split from the bonobos or pygmy chimpanzees as, as they're sometimes called. So they look very different and they are behaviorally different. So that's that's a good comparison. Okay, so 700,000 years ago, what's going on? Who is where and what are we? That's a really <laughs> tricky one. Um, 700,000 years ago, Neanderthals are not really Neanderthals yet. Um, that's before them. Our paths are still the same at that point, aren't Yeah, they? so we are um, we're a homo, we're from the homo branch um, in terms of uh, deeper hominin evolution. Um, so if you go back to say like three million years ago, you have small creatures um, that are still relatively apey in some ways. They don't have very large brains, but they are fully bipedal um, and they are making uh, stone tools, lithics. Um, the oldest uh, record that we have now for that in Africa is 3.3 million years with essentially quite simple um, napping. It's using stone anvil. You kind of just hit it on the anvil. So it's not really napping that you would think of as somebody sitting there and making an axe. Um, and as you go through time, about 2 million years ago, you get things that are starting to look a bit more like us, um, early homo species. And by about 1.8 to 1.5 million years ago in Africa, um, you have the emergence of Homo ergaster, which is the name that we now use for what everybody used to call Homo erectus. Um, essentially very human-like in, in body. Um, the, the brain is not so big. There are differences, but they are fully upright. They're quite tall, actually. Um, and they're definitely living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. We have footprint sites um, from around a lake where we can basically see them stalking animals around a lake. It's amazing. Um, so that's already one and a half million years ago, um, well before the Neanderthals. Um, so if you sort of zoom forward, um, we don't quite know where the split between us and the branch that was going to lead to Neanderthals happened, but on the balance, it's probably going to be in Africa. Um, and the the split leading to us, you shouldn't kind of think of it necessarily as like a just a branch, like a straight path. Um, what we see from from the archaeology, uh, not so much the archaeology, but the anatomy and the genetics is really suggesting that our own lineage evolved uh, almost as like a meta population. Um, different uh, subpopulations across the continent in Africa almost show sort of a mosaic of features anatomy and it looks like there probably was um, far more contact and um, interbreeding between those and that coalesced over time into what looks like us in Africa about between about 300 and 150,000 years ago. So that's quite late, really. It took us all that time to, to become um, something that really looks like, like you and me. And if we then look at what was going on with Neanderthals, um, the branch that was going to lead to them, um, we would call them Neandersovans because that branch then split not too long after, probably about 600,000 years. One sort of population is turning into the Neanderthals in Europe, probably, the other branch is going to become the Denisovans, um, this other kind of hominin that has only really recently been identified initially purely from genetics, um, which is amazing in itself that we can sort of pick out this ghost 
hominin that we knew nothing about. Um, and they were a, a, an Asian species by the look of it. Uh, we know very little about them. Uh, we've got just a handful of uh, fossils and we don't really understand exactly where they fit archaeologically in terms of their culture. Um, but the Neanderthals certainly... Um, what we might call proto-Neanderthals are appearing in Europe um, by around 430,000 years ago and we have really great uh, fossil evidence for that um, from Spain um, and sort of if you force fast forward it 100,000 years onwards to about 350,000 years ago which still sounds like a hugely long time but on that massive scale back to 3 million years it's very recent um, that is when Neanderthals proper emerged um, and what we would really recognise in terms of their anatomy uh, and also um, their culture. The middle Paleolithic is what we call that um, and <clears throat> their their way of life is by that point quite clearly um, established um, top hunters um, already experimenting with different materials for, for using tools and things like this so um, that's that's really the point at which they They've arrived, if you want to put it that way. So you've got, we call, still call them Homo sapiens? Yeah, 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 we're Homo sapiens. I would call people who were around at the same time as Neanderthals, or call them early Homo sapiens, basically, just to differentiate from us. Yeah, early versions of us. Then you've also got some Denisovans knocking about, potentially, as well. In Asia, yep. And so you have got different, like, very closely rated human uh, hominid species. Okay, uh, so obviously, first question is, Neanderthals and humans were able to breed, were they? Yes, we know we first found that out for sure a decade ago. There was a long, long, long debate sort of beginning in the, the 90s, really, and, and moving onwards that um, that there were two models. One was that hominins in general um, were quite widespread across the old world early, you know, from a million plus. Um, they were outside Africa. There was an idea that there was always interconnectedness between different populations across the old world um, in a slow organic kind of way but the proposal was that there was some gene flow and that within different regions um, different uh, hominins emerged um, but also interacted and then against that was um, a different view that um, homo sapiens emerged only in Africa and then dispersed out of Africa this was the out of Africa theory um, and essentially replaced the existing archaic hominin species that were all around the rest of the old world um, and that was it that there was no like interbreeding it was just swept away basically um, and the first genetic material that was found was from the mitochondrial genome uh, which is like the, the powerhouse cells in your body. Um, that seemed to support that because there was basically no no sense that Neanderthals had contributed anything to our mtDNA. The problem is that mtDNA is only from maternal lines, um, so it's not going to tell the whole picture. So it was only 10 years ago that we first got um, our first real look at a nuclear genome um they were they were not as complete and as high resolution as we can get now with good fossils but it showed definitely that there was a signal suggesting that people outside um sub-saharan africa 
were more similar to Neanderthals than people um, in that region, which was definitely a really strong hint that there had been some interbreeding. And since then, it's just gone, you know, crazy that there is so much more evidence now. And I think that's something that's really hard for people to keep track of. Um, I think most people, most people know, oh, we interbred with them, didn't we? You know, but um, but the amount of different um, kinds of evidence for that and the picture that we now have that there were probably multiple phases of contact and interbreeding potentially going back before 200,000 years ago maybe even before 270,000 years ago um, that's a big change um, so it, it looks like there were earlier dispersals of early homo sapiens and people that were essentially looking pretty much like us um, out from Africa into at least Asia the Near East through the Near East and across into Asia and based on fossil evidence um, it now looks as if um, people were in China by at least between 80,000 perhaps as much as 120,000 years ago. Um, we have uh, good evidence based on the archaeology and genetics from Australia that Aboriginal people's history goes back 65,000 years ago you know and they had to get there so um so that's pushing that back that matches this asian chronology and then we also have from the near east um in israel we have a site now which um looks uh, as if um the fossil is looking pretty much like common sapiens and that's 180,000 years ago so that dispersal of when people began to move outside africa has been pushed way back in time which means that the scope of when we could have been interacting with Neanderthals has massively widened and that's exactly what we see from the genetics. It is pointing from multiple different samples um, suggesting that, that there were different periods during which um, these populations were meeting and probably in very different um, social settings um, there was interaction and breeding hybrid babies. Um, so as a Western European, I am more likely to have Neanderthal DNA, right, than someone a, a Tasmanian. No, that's what that's what people used to think because people used to see Europe as the Neanderthal's heartland. Um, but really, they are a Eurasian species. If you look geographically, uh, if you plot all their sites out and look geographically at the spread, there's actually more into Asia than in Europe. Um, so they're def they were always a Eurasian species. Um, and what seems to have happened, although genetics is extremely fast moving, every sample we get has the potential to really change the picture because we have so few at the moment. Um, so we have to bear that in mind that things can, can shift somewhat. But at the moment, it looks like um, we were probably uh, moving, dispersing out of Africa, but we didn't get anywhere near Europe for a long time. Um, we may have been sort of around the edges in the Near East in Israel, but um, it looks as if the populations um, that dispersed from Africa that went across into Asia did encounter Neanderthals and living people from East Asia, um, as well as other regions in Oceania, um, so Papuans, they have more Neanderthal in their genome than Western Europeans. And that's partly because Western Europeans are not an ancestral population that have been in Europe for all this time. They are Neolithic peoples 
for the most part. So when you're talking about Ice Age humans, Homo sapiens people hunting in, in Europe and the Upper Paleolithic, who made the cave art? That's not the ancestors of most living Western Europeans. Those populations also were replaced successively through later prehistory. Um, so that's something that's often a surprise. We like to say, oh, we're a success. You know, we, we're still here and the Antitals aren't. But those early populations that we see in Europe, those early hunter-gatherers, they're not really much to do with the present day European population. Those people came from the Near East. So that's why you have lower amounts in Western Europeans than in East Asians of Neanderthal DNA. But the other interesting thing is that although potentially somewhere up to 20 to 50% of the whole Neanderthal genome might be preserved in living people, it's not all the same bits in different groups. And that's probably because all these different phases of when people were encountering each other, different material, you know, is went over or rather uh, it would take the, the diversity of the existing populations that were interacted with. But then what was kept in us varied. Um, so it looks like um, genes to do with immunity were definitely something that was important for us and that's kept. But not everything is the same across living people as to what you've actually got. OK, so we are talking too much about Homo sapiens. And we're so focused on ourselves. We're here to talk about Neanderthals. So let, okay, so let's just ignore the Homo sapiens. So when you do get a a group of Neanderthals pre-contact with proto Homo sapiens, what tell me what? How do they live? What do we know about them? How are they? How are they different to what we would become? Well, we know an awful lot now. Um, it's 160 odd years since we first discovered Neanderthals or rediscovered them um, in the mid 19th century, and the the change in in what the pioneer prehistorians had to deal with in terms of the material they could use and their methods of analysis is enormous so you know i think their jaws would really drop at what 21st century archaeologists can actually do and um, you know we can look from stone tool assemblages to the kinds of animals they ate but we can go right down to you know micro scale analysis we can look at the grot in the calculus on Neanderthal teeth to see what they ate. We can actually see like traces of, of smoke <laughs> in, their, in their dental calculus. Um, we can examine the microstructure of an individual hearth to assess how many phases of burning it had, whether the temperatures of burning were different. And you might want to know that because that can tell you things about how that site was used. Did people, did Neanderthals reuse that hearth in one place did they use it for different things which tells you a lot about how organized their lives were so these we kind of have to have to tack between different scales of our data and um, they'll tell us different things but we can then stitch that together into an into a narrative of their lives but it's still completely grounded in the archaeology and that's that's exactly what i've tried to do in the book so tell me, okay, so what's a night out with Neanderthals like? I mean, we, we are they reusing that hearth? Are they moving all the time? What are they eating? The impression we get really is that for almost all of their period of existence, um, compared to early Homo sapiens of the same time, contemporaries, um, they were living pretty similar lives. Um, people were in small groups, Neanderthals. It looks like they were never large sort of agglomerations of people they were not staying for months and months at 
at a time in a single site in a cave or a rock shelter. They were highly mobile, but that doesn't mean that they were disorganised or unsystematic. The impression that we get is that they, they knew the land intimately, they knew the places to be at the right time, so they would, um, we have evidence from some places that um, they are at sites and they are targeting particular animals at different times of the year, different seasons. Um, so there's uh, sites in Spain where it looks like they're hunting the deer all year round. And we can tell that because of the wear on the animal's teeth varies depending on the kind of diet it has through the year. And the deer look like they were there all the time. Whereas the horse all look like they were taken during a short period of time. Not necessarily all the horses in that site were killed in one particular season, um, like of one year, but it's a seasonal signature. Um, so there is structure. And then if you transpose that to look at the what they're doing within the space of a site, again, that picture's really changed that for a long time people um, sort of presented Neanderthals as not really much more organised than hyenas in their dens, you know, coming in, eating some food, making a fire and sort of just trashing everything and, and leaving. But when we use really high resolution analysis with good sites um, where the, the preservation is very good, we can definitely see clear patterning in how they were using their space. And um, so you have the hearths. I mean, hearths are obviously a centre of activity. And we know that we build our houses around the hearth still. But we can literally see, you know, the the halo of artefacts around hearths where they were sitting and, and organising their their daily work around the fire. Um, there are different hearths at the back of the cave that look like they were burning differently, smouldering. Probably those are sleeping hearths to warm them um, because they're going to sleep at the back of the cave with your back to the to the rock because there's a lot of nasty beasts around. Um, and we can also see in, in several sites really good evidence now for um, middens, so active management of waste you know, rubbish piles, basically. And we know that uh, by looking at the at the structuring, so like the layering within those middens, we can see evidence for burning of um, plant materials, which was probably bedding. Um, we can see layers of uh, charcoal and ash from where they've raked out their hearths um, to like freshen them up and then dumped that as well. Um, so there's clear evidence that they were living in a way that would not look unfamiliar, you know, if, if you sort of were suddenly transported back, it would look like people, you know, just getting on, doing the stuff around the, the fire, there's a little rubbish dump, there's a sleeping bit. Um, and then we can see really cool stuff in some places. There's evidence for animal processing. So they are hunting out in the landscape. They have kill sites. Um, quite often at the kill sites, um, depending on the size and the species of the animals, um, they will be selective about what they butchered, how much they carried away. And um, then you have sometimes secondary processing sites where they bring jointed stuff in, cut it up more, smash up the bones, get the marrow out, because we have to remember that they were really interested in fat and, and marrow, not just um, lean meat. Um, and then that stuff sometimes then gets taken on further or it goes direct from the kill site to caves and rock shelters. And we can see once it arrives, um, in some places there is, appears to be processing of different parts of animals in different parts of the site. Um, so that may be to do with the number of people staying there at any one time. Um, the kind of makeup of the group might change how they did their butchery, for example, whether they separated a whole carcass and different, perhaps subfamilies within a group, got a different part. Um, 
but the impression we get clearly is that um, you know they were not I guess sort of scrabbling around at a kill and, and everyone just grabbing what they could get and it was you know chaotic it was always systematic um, their butchery they knew exactly how to take apart an animal um, they knew the best bits to take back with them and um, the impression really is of, of sharing of that resource um, amongst the group um, so I think that's something that's that really has wider resonances for how we see their society as a whole Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. To take one brief moment to pause and say how unbelievably cool it is that you can reconstruct that, that, that journey of from a hunt to a kill to a butchery process to a night sleeping at at 300,000 uh, years. I mean, at, at, sorry, 200,000 years. I mean, I'm just like, it's astonishing. A lot of those sites with really good condition are, are later. They're like 100,000 or a bit later. But you do still have really, really nice, nicely preserved early sites. So one that's really famous is um, Scherningen in Germany, which is a horse hunting site where Neanderthals went back repeatedly, potentially over decades, maybe centuries, to this lake shore and they hunted horses, probably ambushing them. And they have um, they were using spears. We know that because the spears are there. Um, these amazingly finely crafted um, spruce and pine spears, probably throwing because they are they appear to be weighted like javelins are. Um, and that site is three hundred thirty thousand years old. Unbelievable. Um, can can I? So so why? Uh, I mean, are they any? They sound. Um, I don't want to make any great claims for our species, but they sound as sophisticated as Homo sapiens are they? I mean, like, is there any difference really in in the sites? There is. Um, 
what seems to be intriguing is that the early Homo sapiens coming into Europe, say 180,000, we don't know that much about, um, about them. We have their fossils, but we haven't really sort of got a handle on exactly what archaeology and things they were producing. But if you look, say, from about 40,000 years ago, which is the last dispersal probably of our species into Europe, and that was where we had the last encounters with Neanderthals. Um, what people are doing um, at that point really does not look that different to Neanderthals. They are pretty much hunting the same animals. There are some isotopic studies which can um, which can really show you where they are in in the trophic level. So which you know which predators they resemble in in terms of what they're eating, um, and it looks like Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens, certainly in, in northwest Europe, when it was quite cold around 40,000 years ago, were eating a lot of mammoth. Their diet is basically the same. Um, the There's been a long period where people were proposing maybe we had a more broad diet or we were more specialised in mammoth and things, and um, it doesn't look like that's necessarily true. I think Neanderthals you can think of Neanderthals as focused on uh, quality. So wherever they were, and we have to remember they lived in interglacial periods as well, when it was as warm as today and even warmer, what was around them, they took the best of what was in their environment. So in the in the Southern Europe, in the Mediterranean, we do see them um, not hunting things like mammoths and stuff because they're not really there so much, but you have red deer, small game rabbits, birds, tortoises, and um, so this broad spectrum diet that was once claimed to be something that made us really successful, they are doing it in some places. So the diet and the hunting side is not really not really a difference. But in terms of what seems to become more clear over time um, after the Neanderthals were gone, we can see what we began to develop into. And it's certainly true that um, it seems that we had more extensive and more connected social networks than Neanderthals did. So not all Neanderthals, you know, just lived in one valley and were really inbred. There's definitely evidence that in some regions, populations were extremely small and there was inbreeding, but not in all contexts for Neanderthals, so there's diversity there. However, none of the early Homo sapiens genetic samples we have so far, we don't have that many, but none of them show any kind of signature for, you know, tiny breeding populations or inbreeding. So there's definitely something different going on in how um, how the society of early hominids people were structured because they were they were living in tiny numbers as well. It's not like there were loads more of them, but clearly they were more interconnected um, in order to show a greater genetic diversity, even if you have a tiny population, you will, you have to be in contact more. You have to be meeting more people. Um, so probably that is um, why we later see, sort of 10,000 years old later, we see, you know, the construction of large mammoth huts um, during this later uh, period of the last ice age. Um, but I think that tendency was there earlier. We just don't see it in the archaeological record, but we can see it genetically. Um, so that's that's definitely there. And we can also see it in the way that the early Homo sapiens people seem to have transported or moved around their lithics further, um, their sewn tools. So 
uh, when you want to assess the scale of, uh, of a social network, you can look at the isotopes in your body or in Neanderthal's body, which will record geologically the place where you grew up and you were born. It gets basically sort of laid down in your teeth and bones compared to where those bones are found. And you compare the, the difference. And we can't do that for all samples because we don't have many fossil samples and you're not allowed to just drill through all of them. So the other thing you can do is look at the scale at which you see stone tools moving across the landscape from the source to where they end up, where you find them. And those distances are lengthier and there are more of the longer distance uh, transfers for early Homo sapiens than for Neanderthals. So Neanderthals did sometimes move their tools a long way say over 100 kilometres, up to 300 kilometres. Um, and that's showing, that's just a, a snapshot of a particular territory because we're not going to see it from beginning to end. It's just a snapshot of where that where those individuals were moving around. But, the, but we kind of, we hype it up basically. And the same thing, this hyping up is what we see with the symbolic evidence too. So Neanderthals were, I would call them aesthetically, um, engaged with materials so that's um, they're they're making marks structured marks on bones we have evidence for that and um, they're interested in pigments they're interested in mixing substances um, to make different pigment mixes they're interested in um, material transformation so we can see that they they knew how to turn birch bark into birch tar to haft their tools together and um, you have to cook that and sort of it's not easy it's not it's not incredibly difficult but it's it's not you know something that really happens by accident you have to manage that process and now we have new evidence that they were um combining pine resin with beeswax uh to make glue for the tools as well so that's that's a mixing thing they're doing with pigments as well uh, they're interested in fossils um there's a fossil shell from a site in italy called uh, grotta fumani and this is a shell that was probably carried 100 kilometers from where it was picked up and it has red pigment on the outside. Um, so it's only one thing, but this is the only thing like that from the whole record, but it's like, it's a little keyhole into what was going on. But when you look at what Homo sapiens were doing, it's amplified, you know, the amount of pigment use is much more, the markings on other materials like bone, they become more structured, more clearly designed graphically. Yeah, so the, the diversity of, of what, what was happening aesthetically um, is greater and it also looks more structured in terms of potential symbolic content so that's what I would say is the real difference so humans are homo sapiens we're artists and we hang about in gangs and we travel is that what is that what gave us that advantage over over Neanderthals final question where did the Neanderthals go were they were they absorbed into us were they murdered were they starved what happened to them well they haven't gone anywhere because they're still they're still here in genetic terms there's probably more of them still here than walked the earth although in bodily form but why do we not look like neanderthals basically is a question why you know why have they disappeared as a as a as a fossil you know why did the fossil disappear why did their culture disappear um i think really after you know more than 100 years of people debating this um there is very little evidence for direct conflict um we don't see greater levels of aggression or you know interpersonal violence in Neanderthals compared to early homo sapiens they don't look like they were up for a fight any more than we were 
Um, and I think also the assumption that contact would necessarily be something that has an aggressive default position. Um, I think that's also uh, open to debate because of what we see about Neanderthal society more broadly. If you look at the, the primate models, for example, um, chimpanzees are quite aggressive to other groups um, they they actually patrol their territories if they see another group and the numbers look in their favour they'll have a go and they'll try and kill them bonobos are different they don't do that no they they don't do that they're much more open to interaction and there's no reason from the archaeology why we should favour the chimp model um, if we look at what Neanderthals are doing they are groups that are bounded around sharing of resources within their own group. And that's that's one of the explanations for the reason why bonobos are not hyper-aggressive like chimps, because there's less food competition and they're not fighting over resources so much. So females, for example, in chimpanzee, in chimpanzee society don't really have like strong friendships. It's, it's all about competition and they go away and, and hide to have their baby because there's infanticide is a huge risk. Bonobos is not like that. They have friendships. They they actually, you know, bonobo females will try and assist during birth, will try and support and, and it's it's just so much less aggressive. So I don't see any evidence that suggests that Neanderthals as more like bonobos is not a realistic possibility, which means that in situations where different, um, very different um, groups are meeting us and them, there's not necessarily a reason why it should have been a fight. doesn't mean to say that there wasn't conflict. I'm sure there was, because we have to remember we're not talking about one time or one place where this happened. We're talking multiple periods across more than 100,000 years, so that every context would be different. But we should also remember that hybrid babies, in order to survive, they need to be looked after. They need to be able to adapt to the, whichever cultural group they're raised in and grow up find a partner and have their own babies if that didn't happen we wouldn't see the dna signal in us you know and that speaks to at least some level of cultural compatibility you know social compatibility cognitive compatibility even if it's not identical um so i think that's another interesting perspective but in terms of why they disappear we're not looking at a full assimilation you know they're not like the borg they totally we didn't we didn't totally assimilate neanderthals um because the genetics doesn't doesn't show that it's it's smaller scale um but it might just come down to slow processes where it was already a difficult time neanderthals had lived through harsh glacial periods before they'd coped with that they had coped with great instability as well but it may be that the last dispersal of, of us coming and sort of pushing at the boundaries of, of Europe and and, sh and their area beginning to shrink coincided with this climatic period that we know was extremely, you know, up and down and up and down. And you could have very different conditions just within a person's lifetime, even on shorter scales. So if you're a hunter-gatherer, you really do not want instability. That's a big problem. Um, so that may have made a setting where people were competing for resources. And if one group, perhaps us, was just a little bit more successful every year and had more babies over a thousand years, that's going to have a big impact.
Climate change, man. Volcanoes. Oh, yeah. um, uh, so last last question, very quick. Where was the last Where was the last Neanderthal, and where do they live, and when was it? Nobody knows. <laughs> um, what we see is that pretty much everywhere they're gone by about forty thousand years ago. Um, some of the very the, the dates that seem more recent than that, sort of 28,000, 30,000, 34,000, as we use better techniques, they've been pushed older as we, as we've sort of honed our dating. That has been pushing it back more towards 40,000. So I would say just on, you know, geography, it's probably somewhere in Western Europe. But we shouldn't forget that they were in Asia as well. So the last Neanderthal could have been somewhere off in Siberia, um, perhaps even further east. We don't know what their eastwards extent was. So, yeah, we should keep our minds open. Neanderthals like to surprise us. See. One day we'll find one in Minnesota. Let's fingers crossed. Um, thank you. I mean, that would be a cat among the old pigeons. Anyway, thank you very much. What's the book called? It's called Kindred: Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. Brilliant. Thank you. That was so cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't want to buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.